If you look down at chapter 5, verse 6, you'll see that the first word is for. The reason our passage begins with that word is because Paul wants to tie what he's just said in verse 5 with what he's about to say in verses 6 to 8. In verse 5, Paul has just said this, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Meaning that if you're a Christian here, in your subjective experience, when you came to know Christ, you also came to experience the love of God within. But Paul wants all of us to know that our subjective experience of the love of God is rooted and anchored in the objective fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross for us. Paul, the wise pastor, begins this way because he knows that as Christians, it is often our temptation to gauge whether or not God loves us, not on the basis of the objective historical fact of the cross, but to gauge and measure God's love for us by our subjective experience. So, for example, you know, it's a sunny day outside, all is well with my family and friends, all is well at my work or in my studies, my quiet times are so rich and meaningful, and I can subjectively interpret all these things and think to myself, well, God must love me today. Whereas on the other hand, say it's a miserable day outside, say all is not well in my family or among my friends or in my work or in my studies, say that I can't remember the last time I prayed or read God's word. I can easily, subjectively interpret that and think to myself, God mustn't love me. In fact, you know when that happens more often than not, it's when we're going through challenging circumstances, tough times. We can easily interpret at the human level, if I'm going through this suffering, if God has allowed it, maybe it's because he doesn't love me. Or when we succumb to sin, perhaps a habitual sin that we have often succumbed to, we can feel afterwards guilty, ashamed. And in those moments, we can find ourselves wondering to ourselves, does God really love me? If I keep on doing this, can he really accept me? And Paul, the pastor, knowing that our temptation is often to rest or gauge our measure of God's love on our subjective experience, here in verses 6 to 8 wants to make it clear, we must rest all of our confidence in the objective historical fact of the cross of Christ. I've got three headings for us this morning as we work through these verses. God demonstrated his love when we deserved it the least, heading one. Heading two, God demonstrated his love when we needed it the most. And heading three, God demonstrated his love for us in this. Christ died for us. So first of all, God demonstrated his love for us when we deserved it the least. Read verse six with me. For while we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Do you know who Christ died for? It might seem like a basic question. 
but it's such an important question. If we're going to grasp the greatness of God's love for us, we must grasp the objects of God's love. And Paul says Christ died for those who were weak, those who were ungodly. In verse 8, he says, for those who were sinners. In verse 10, he goes as far as to say, for those who were God's enemies. Those four descriptions of us are profoundly unflattering. But if you want to grasp the greatness of God's love for you, you must understand who you are as the object of God's love. Just so we don't misunderstand what Paul's saying here is that Paul's not sitting as someone who thinks of himself as superior. He's not sitting with a religious smugness. No, he uses that inclusive word, we. While we were still weak, while we were ungodly, while we were still sinners, while we were God's enemies. This is the reality of all of us by nature. When Paul describes us as uh, those who are weak here, he's not speaking about weakness in the physical sense, of course. He's speaking about weakness in the spiritual sense. When we are helpless, powerless to save ourselves, helpless and powerless to make ourselves right with God, to even bring ourselves to God. When we were ungodly, to be ungodly is to be everything that God is not. God's good, God's perfect, God's holy, God's pure. We're not good. We're not holy. We're unholy. We're not pure. We're impure. We're imperfect. And what's really fascinating is that when Paul says we were ungodly, if you remember back to chapter 1, Paul said in chapter 1, verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed against heaven, against what? All ungodliness. And here in chapter 5, Paul's now going to say the love of God is demonstrated for those who are by nature ungodly. The objects of God's wrath become, in this chapter, the objects of God's love. And then he says, while we were still sinners, to to sin is to miss the mark, it's to fall short of God's glory. R.C. Sproul would say, to sin, to be a sinner, is to commit cosmic treason. It is to offend our King. It's not just that we are sinners, he says, that we are God's enemies. And when he describes us as God's enemies here, he's talking about the fact that God, who is just, cannot be an ally with those who are unrighteous, ungodly, and sinful. Now, now, why do I mention all of this? Well, because Paul wants us to see that God's love was demonstrated for those who deserved it the least. Just think for a moment. Who are often the objects of your love and my love? Who do we love? We love those who we find beautiful, attractive. We love those who make us feel good. We love those who love us. How do I know that? Just go listen to any modern love song in the car or on your Spotify playlist. I love you because of the way you make me feel. I love you because you're beautiful. 
And yet here is what we learn here. Paul says that about the greatness of God's love, it is seen, it is demonstrated in the objects of God's love. Christ died for us, not when we were strong, but when we were weak. Not when we were godly, but when we were ungodly and deserving his wrath. Not when we were sanctified, but when we were sinners. Not when we were his friends, but when we were his bitter enemies. He died for us who were so undeserving of his love. You know, one of the things that I often come across when speaking to Christians is, and Christians who have been Christian for a long time, is that sometimes they still remain confused about God's love for them. Some people, when they, they think of Christ's death on the cross, they, they, they get this distorted, this wrong understanding that the reason Christ died was in some ways to twist God's arm to say, God, now that I've died for them, love them. Let me be so clear here. The death of Christ is the manifestation of God's love. It is not the cause of God's love. We must be clear. God does not love you because Christ died for you. The purpose of the atonement was not to make God loves us. The love of God is so utterly unconditional. The love of God is not conditioned on anything in us. In fact, if it were conditioned on something in us, we would not have received it in the first place because we're ungodly, we're sinful, we're enemies, we're helpless. God's love is not based on anything in us, but it's based on everything in him. God is love. There's no love like God's love. John 3.16, Martin Lloyd-Jones would say in his commentary on Romans 5 verse 8, this is just a sermon on John 3.16. It's like Paul's just expounding John 3.16. But the amazing thing that John 3.16 tells us is that it was because God so, the, the intensity, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. You and I need to understand that the son did not need to do anything to persuade the father who loves us. He already loves us. Gerhardus Voss said this, the best proof that God loves you and that he'll never cease to love you lies in this. He never began loving you. You know, in Christianity, there's a word for this amazing love that God shows to us who deserve it the least. The word's grace. And many a Christian songwriter has and so amazed with God's love that they've written hymns. 200 years ago this year, round the corner where the Bank of England is, St. Mary Wilnoth, John Newton penned that amazing Christian hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. 300 years ago, on this very street, Little Britain Street, the street you walked into to get into this building, Charles Wesley sat down and penned the hymn, And Can It Be? that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood. Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be? 
that thou, my God, should die for me. So God demonstrated his love for us when we deserved it the least. Well, we've thought about God demonstrating his love for us when we deserved it the least. Now let's think about God demonstrating his love when we needed it the most. If you look back at verse 6, you'll see there he says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, there are different ways of understanding what Paul is getting at here. This may be a, a historical comment. comment. It was just the right the, t- it, it, it just the, right the time, the, the right time. It was the era of the Roman Empire. It was arguably the best time if the message of Christianity was to spread far and wide. Well, there was a common language. There were roads. It, was, it meant that the message of the gospel could spread far and wide. It was just the right time. But I don't think that's what Paul's getting at here. Because in the context of what he says, he says it was while we were weak, it was when we were ungodly at just the right time. As in just when we needed rescuing. If you've ever read through the Old Testament, you've probably wondered to yourself, why is this so long? Why is this a saga, a chronicle of the repeated failure the constant rebellion of God's people. And if you've ever had that thought, here's perhaps why it's the case, because God wants to make clear to us that all of humanity from the garden and the fall onwards have been utterly lost and spiritually bankrupt. Powerless to save ourselves, powerless to make ourselves right with God. And at just the right time, in the fullness of time, Christ came. Indeed, one of the commentators points out, see, that's why Paul uses the little word still. See that? For while we were still weak, while we were still sinners, while we were still his enemies, after all those generations, after all the best attempts and the best efforts of men and women, we were still ungodly, still sinners, still unable to make us right with God. God. It's actually fascinating when you think about the right time. Jesus came at the time when he came to his own and his own did not receive him. Instead, they crucified him. And that reminds us that salvation is all of his doing and not of our doing. So we've seen God demonstrate his love for us And we deserved it at least. We've thought about God demonstrating his love when we needed it the most. Let's finally, and I've kind of got two headings here. Let's think about the magnitude and the proof of God's love as we think about God demonstrating his love for us in this. Christ died for us. So first, the the magnitude of God's love. Look at verse 7 and 8. Where one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul does something brilliant here. In order to help us grasp something of the magnitude of God's love, he makes a contrast between the amazing divine love of God 
showcased in Jesus dying for us with human sacrificial love. Has it ever struck you that in our culture, we, we like to make heroes out of those who give their lives for others? So if you walk out the church, walk out the back doors, walk into Postman Park, walk to the back wall, you'll see the memorial wall for those who've given themselves and sacrificed for others. 54 plaques commemorating different people who gave themselves for other people. On Monday in America, I believe it was Memorial Day, when the Americans stop and remember those who have given their life in service to their freedoms and their nation. In November, in Remembrance Sunday, we as a nation stop and remember who gave themselves in the great wars. And it's right that we do so. But can I ask you this heart-searching question? Who honestly would you be prepared to die for? Would you die for your spouse? Die for your children? Die for your parents? Would you die for your friends? Would you die for your country? I suspect most of us would say, yeah. But just look at what Paul says. Verse 7. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. You know, for years I have scratched my head when I've read that verse. What does he mean one will scarcely die for a righteous person, a virtuous person, a worthy person? Of course we would. Really? Who died for Jesus? Now you might think of that moment in the Garden of Gethsemane where Peter took out his sword and he struck the high priest's ear. He was willing to die for Jesus, surely? Well, moments later, he was denying he even knew Jesus to a little servant girl in the courtyard. Now, Paul does go on and say, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. That's true. Many of us would give ourselves for others. If you've ever watched that classic film, Saving Private Ryan, you know there's eight men on a mission to save Private Ryan because three of his brothers are dead and his mum's about to receive the news and the Americans wanted to assure in World War II that she would not receive the news that all of our sons were killed. And there's that famous scene, they're walking through the field. And they all turn to their captain and say, do you believe in this mission? You know, here we, we're, of us, we're going to die. We're going to be shot at for this guy we don't even know. None of them really believed in the mission. And when they finally got the answer out of their captain, he could say, of course I believe in the mission. And perhaps you and I would say, of course, I, I believe in the mission to die for someone I love, someone who I have deep affection for. But here is the heart-searching question. Would you be willing to die for your enemy? Would you be willing to die for someone who hates you, who slanders you, who ignores you, who remains completely and utterly indifferent to you? I say that because verse 8, the punchline of verse 7 is, but God. God shows, God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, 
Christ died for us. Jesus didn't die for his own kind, if I can put it like that. He was righteous. He died for the unrighteous. He was just. He died for the unjust. He was God. He died for the ungodly. This is amazing love. This is love that goes beyond the best and the deepest sacrifices known to human beings. You know, if you, if you grasp what Paul is saying here, it ought to melt your heart and my heart. We are so undeserving of this love. We desperately need this love. And here we're told that God demonstrates, God proves, God shows his love for us in this while we were sinners. Christ died for us. Tim Keller, who many of us have been thinking about of late following his passing, used to always say this. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. How could he say that? Because of the cross. The cross shows us that as the objects of God's love, we are weak, ungodly, sinners, enemies. The cross shows us that Christ died for us when we needed it the most, when we couldn't save ourselves. The cross shows us the magnitude of God's love for us. Just yesterday, I was listening to a sermon on this passage by a colleague of mine. He was preaching it at a seminary in America. And in this sermon, he, he used a really powerful illustration. Um, there's a pastor in Scotland called Mez McConnell. He's the pastor of Nidre Community Church. He's the director of a network of churches called 20 Schemes. They plant churches in Scotland's poorest housing schemes. A few years back, he wrote this book, The Creaking on the Stairs, Finding Faith in God, through childhood abuse. Rosaria Butterfield says this, the most disturbing book that I have ever read, I cannot recommend it highly enough. In the book, there's a chapter on grace. Mez comes to speak about the passage we're studying this morning. Mez details abuse he experienced as a child growing up in a terrible home. A massive impact on his life. It led him to a life of drugs, crime, violence, and eventually prison. Amazingly, he became a Christian through reading Matthew Henry's commentary on the book of Romans. This is what he says in the chapter on grace. In the early years, I had no real understanding of how far God's grace, God's amazing and undeserved love extended. As I grew to love the Lord more and more and the church more and more, I became scared. What if people found out what I was really like? What a liar I was. What a fantasist. 
What if they realized that I had done some truly awful things in my life? I thought a lot about my victims over the years. The people I stabbed, the homes I burgled, the drugs I had sold, the frauds I had committed. I dreaded people who knew me in the past coming into the church to expose me as a charlatan. I used to have nightmares of all the people I had ever hurt coming to a church service and sitting there listening as I told them about my new life in Jesus. I could see their sneers. I could hear their jeering. I could sense the anger, the hostility, the cynicism. What a joke. What a lying rat. Hanging around with respectable people, pretending to be a Christian. It sounded ridiculous to me. And I knew it was genuine. Then one day I discovered these verses in the Bible. Romans chapter 5, verse 6 to 8. I discovered that Jesus didn't just die for me, but he did it knowing just how ungodly I was. He saved me when I was at my weakest, when I was at my least desirable. He saw me at my worst and still saved me. He did not reach out to me because he saw redeemable features in me, like my fantastic sense of humor. There was nothing lovable about me. There was no good. Instead, his own love compelled him to do it. The sense of freedom and relief this passage brought was profound. No, the people in the church did not know what I truly was like. But Jesus did. Yes, people I had heard could sneer and question my motives. People I'd heard could sneer and question my motives, but Jesus had still died for me. They couldn't change that. I couldn't change that. Satan himself couldn't change that. Just like my dear older brother in the Lord, Colin Mez, through Romans 5, verses 6 to 8, came to appreciate the magnitude of God's love for him. Let me ask you another soul-searching question. What is your greatest fear in life? I don't know about you, but one of my greatest fears in life is the people I love the most knowing every single thing about me. Discovering my disgusting thoughts, knowing my darkest secrets. But here's the thing. Jesus knows me. And Jesus loves me. Died for me. Not when I was at my best. Not when I was at my strongest. Not when I was at my most lovely. But when I was weak. When I was a sinner. When I was his enemy. The magnitude of God's love for us very, very quickly. The proof of God's love for us. Verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10 will make clear that Christ who died for us is the Son of God. If you want to understand the cross of Christ, you've got to understand that 
God in Christ died for us. God died for us. Amazing love, how can it be that, oh my God, should die for me? Now, I know that many of us, we know what the cross speaks to us about. It speaks to us about the blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sins. Hallelujah, what a Savior. The cross speaks to us about Jesus satisfying the divine justice of God. Hallelujah, what a Savior. But listen, brothers and sisters, you don't get the cross until you understand that at its very heart, it is a demonstration. It is proof that God loves you and I. You know the most amazing thing about verse 8? is the tense it's written in. It's not written in the past tense. Christ died for us past tense. But God demonstrates, God shows his love for us, present tense. You see, if there are moments in your Christian life you doubt or you're tempted to question the love of God, look to the past event of the cross and discover afresh the present tense love for you. When your circumstances are tough, when temptation greets you day in, day in, day out, and you succumb to it, don't look inward. Look outward. Don't gauge God's love for you in your subjective feelings. Gauge God's love for you in the objective, historical fact that is the cross of Christ. When I had nothing in the world to commend myself to God, Jesus died for me. And if he saved me when I was his enemy, how much more can I count on him now that I am his child? We'll come to this in our series in Romans. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You know, you read this book and it's it's disturbing. It's raw. It's honest. But you know that one of the most jaw-dropping moments is when he speaks about the suffering. And he says it's not even worth comparing to the suffering that Christ endured on the cross to bear the wrath of God in our place for our sin. So I've got a question for you if you're not a Christian yet. Do you see God's love? The cross with Jesus' outstretched arms calls you to come. Come. Come find salvation in him. Come. Know that you're fully known and fully loved. Come find forgiveness in him. Come. Repent of your sins. Turn to him. And if you're a Christian, come. You don't need a question. You don't need to doubt. God loves you. God demonstrated his love for us in this. When we least deserved it, Christ died. When we most needed it, Christ died. God demonstrates his love in this. Christ died for us. Hallelujah. What a savior. Let's pray. Oh God, that our testimony would be as we go from here, the same as our dear brother Colin.
after God spoke to me through this passage, I never once looked back, nor questioned or doubted God's love for me. God, our minds can't take it in. Our minds can't fathom how much you love us. We will go on into all eternity trying to fathom the depths, the heights, the length, the breadth of the love of God in Christ for us. We scarce can take it in. But we pray that even this morning you would assure us of your love and assure us of our wonderful salvation in your Son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.